Hey, so we had several people come into the church over this past week, and wanna, we're going to some of them by baptism, so we want to set these baptisms up. We're going to see Lauren McKee was baptized. She was invited initially by Lisa and Lorenzo. Just reinforces the truth. You know, when you invite somebody, those invitations are so critical, so important. We never know where those are going to lead, but so many people wind up coming to Christ just from a simple invitation to church. Steve and Sandy Watts. Uh, we're going to see their baptism. Sandy has a water phobia. That was probably the first time she's been in the water we're going to see in years. But she overcame that. She wanted to get baptized. And we'll see uh, Chris Sipe is going to, we're going to have some baptisms with the Sipe family over here. And Chris's father, David, is a minister in Philadelphia. And he came here to be a part of these baptisms. And their whole family was baptized. So let's roll that video and watch these baptisms. All right. Great job. Welcome those people. We love to see baptism. Everybody needs to be baptized, so we're so excited to see that. Great job over here, baptized. Family baptisms, that is wonderful. Chris, I know she kept your shades on there. That was so cool. Never really seen that before, but that was great. Uh, also, we had some people place their membership, and so I think we got a couple of the pictures on these. Kristen Rusty Jewell placed their membership. Deborah Delaney placed her membership, and then we have some others. We need pictures. If it's you, we need some of your pictures. Gail Lynch, Keyshawn and Emmanuel Sosa, uh, and then Theda. Theda Holland is going to be baptized in May. She can't right now because of a medical condition, but she'll be baptized in May. So, so excited for that. Kudos. Uh, we love this. So Jesus left the 99 to go for the one. So that's part of our number one mission is constantly reach out and bringing other people in. And kudos to Vera Christian Church for those invitations and for being a loving and a friendly congregation that people want to be a part of and reflecting the love of Jesus. Just a great, great week. Now, we're in a sermon series entitled Not Today, Satan. And it's primarily we're talking about spiritual warfare. There are four messages, and we started this past week talking about we are at war, and as a result, sometimes get hurt in life. We're not totally protected from that. And also, we mentioned our, our combatants. There are enemy combatants in a war, and for us, it's the devil, the flesh, and the world. John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lies, formulates it this way. Deceptive ideas come from the devil that play to disordered desires. That's our flesh that are normalized in a sinful society. That's the world. So, we're devoting a message to each one of those enemies. Next week, we'll talk about the flesh. The Sunday after that, we'll talk about the world. And today, we're talking about the devil. So I want to say four things about the devil this morning. Number one, there is a devil. There is a devil. Jesus said in John 8, 44, speaking to some religious leaders, you are children of your father, the devil. 
That word devil comes in the Greek. The original word is diablos. It's transliterated. If it were translated, it would mean something like it's a verb, slander or accuse. So it could have been translated, you are of your father the accuser or your father the slanderer. There are other titles given to the devil in Scripture. They include the Satan, the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the great dragon, the ancient serpent who leads the whole world astray. What do we know? The biblical data about the devil. The devil is a created being. This is one of the most important things to know about him. He is not the, equiv he's not the evil equivalent of God. Only God is pure, uncreated spirit. Theologians call this the aseity of God. He is self-existent. His existence is not contingent upon anything. Our existence is contingent. The existence of the angels, contingent upon God. And the same for the devil. He is not in the same category as God. He had a beginning. He can have an end as well. So, he is created. He used his free will, autonomy, to rebel against God, seize the throne of the earth, and lead a violent insurrection against the sovereignty of God. Leading angelic beings, he attempts to recruit us into that insurgency as well. Jesus came, the Bible says, to destroy the works of the devil. He did that primarily through his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension into heaven. That's sort of like, it could be equivalent to think of D-Day and World War II. D-Day. What was the date? June 6, 1944. Historians tell us that's the turning point in that war. For all intents and purposes, Hitler's fate was sealed after D-Day. But there were still many battles to fight and much ground to cover. Well, Satan's fate is sealed after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, but we're still fighting. There are many battles still to fight, still much ground to cover. But the, the, uh, what our great hope is looking forward to the return of Jesus, his second coming, where he finishes what he started and assigns the devil to the lake of fire. But the big takeaway is that the devil is real. He's real. He's not a, a figment of someone's imagination. He's not a holdover from a superstitious age. Jesus considered him to be a real entity, the personification of evil. In the 1840s, a world-famous medical center was in Vienna, Austria. It was the Mayo Clinic of its day. But in their maternity wards, women were dying at the frightening rate of one in six pregnant women. That's a 20% mortality rate. Doctors felt the death rate was due to delayed lactation or excessive fear, what they called poisonous air. They didn't know what was causing it. But then a young doctor appeared on the scene. Let's put his picture up there. Anybody recognize this guy from his picture? Um, what? You got it. Ig oh, Ignaz Simmelweis. You didn't know that? Ignaz Simmelweis. Let's say that together. You're going to need this knowledge in the future. Ignaz Simmelweis. All right, so Ignaz Semmelweis arrived. He was placed in charge of the maternity ward. He observed that the women who were examined by the doctors and medical staff became sick and died more often than the women who were not examined. He observed that before going to the maternity ward, these doctors often went to the morgue and examined corpses of people who died, who had died in the previous 24 hours. Immediately afterward, without washing their hands, the medical staff visited pregnant mothers and performed pelvic examinations. 
He sensed a connection. So this was before they knew about germs and microscopes. Sensing a connection. Dr. Semmelweis instituted a strict policy. Any doctor who'd visited the morgue was required to wash their hands before visiting the maternity ward. Mortality rates immediately dropped to one out of every 42 mothers as opposed to one out of every six and went to a 2% death rate compared to a 20% previously. And when this policy was applied hospital-wide, other death rates came down as well. I say that to say this. We have to believe that our enemy is real. They had to believe it was real. Understand something of his nature in order to choose the right strategy to fight against the enemy. It's true with the germs. It's true in spiritual warfare as well. Second thing about the devil, we simply note today, that the devil is malevolent. He is malevolent. Jesus said, John 8, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Again, a little later, John 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, speaking of the devil. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So to Jesus, the devil is an arch villain. He is out to tear everything of God down. If God loves it, the devil hates it. God loves us, the devil hates us. If Jesus' anthem is on earth as it is in heaven, the devil's anthem is on earth as it is in hell. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Anti-life, anti-order, anti-love, wants to corrupt love wherever he can find it, in a relationship, in a neighborhood, a community, a nation, in the world. The devil knows what the end game is for him. He knows where he's going to wind up. So he is now like a wounded animal, a wounded dragon, more dangerous than ever, trying to recruit as many as possible into his violent insurgency. Revelation chapter 12 we read. Terror will come on the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. The dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commands and maintain their testimony for Jesus. We are in the path of harm because of the devil. Spiritual, mental, psychological, and physical harm. Now, this is a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons, but there are physical consequences. And we Christians bleed red just like everyone else does. Physical harm can be initiated as well by the devil. And that's why the Christian life often feels like a battle. It feels like a war. C.S. Lewis wrote, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. There's no day off from the battle. The only easy day was yesterday. And that's why the Bible constantly implores us, make every effort, make every effort to make your calling and election sure. Make every effort to make sure no one misses the grace of God. Make every effort to enter into that rest. Work, effort, fight. Because there's a battle and the devil is malevolent. Number three. Four things about the devil. Number three. The devil's primary weapon is the lie. It's deception. We read that passage from Revelation where John says the devil is out to get the, the, the woman's children. What he does, this is symbolic, he opened his mouth and attempted to flood them. The water was coming out of his mouth, symbolic of the lies and the deceptions 
that the devil has. John 8, 44. Now, this is Jesus' longest, most detailed discourse on the devil. Speaking to some religious leaders, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, notice the emphasis on deception and lies that Jesus has in this passage. Not holding to the truth, no truth in him. When he lies, he is a liar. He's the father of lies. Now, this may not be what we were expecting when we say, hey, we're going to have a series on spiritual warfare. Maybe we're envisioning the exorcist. Maybe we're envisioning demon-possessed people and power encounters like Jesus had in the Gospels and the Apostles in the book of Acts using their miraculous power for these power encounters and they cast out the demons. I suppose there's a place for that. But when Jesus had this teaching on the devil, none of that was in there. The emphasis was on deception and lies. It comes across like an intellectual debate about ideas and truth versus lies. And Jesus' warning on deception is followed by over 40 warnings in the rest of the New Testament from the apostles and the apostolic circle about lies and deception, and most of them having to do with sexual mores. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Let's give you a handful. Paul writes, do not be deceived. Colossians 2, 4. I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. 2 Timothy 3. Evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. Titus 3. Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. 2 Corinthians 11, I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. And 1 John 3, dear children, don't let anyone deceive you. We think of the first sin. And it's somewhat of a prototype of temptation. The devil comes to Eve in the Garden of Eden. She's enjoying her, her new life in the garden. And he tells his first lie, his first deception. Did God really say, now right there he's sowing doubt, seeds of doubt about God's word. But did God really say, you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Isn't that interesting how already he's twisting what God said? Because what did God say? God said, you can eat of any tree in the garden. You just can't eat from the one. But the devil said, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden of Eden? And Eve said, no, we can eat of the trees except for the one. If we eat of that tree, we will die. And the devil's next lie was much more forward. You will not die. God knows that when you eat of that fruit, you will become like God knowing good from evil. So what is he lying about? The devil is lying about God. He's lying about mankind. By the way, Adam means mankind. Eve means life. I believe they were two people, but it's interesting. They, their names mean mankind and life. He's lying about who we are, and he's lying about what constitutes a good life, what constitutes a flourishing life. He's basically saying, Join me in my rebellion against God. Go my way, and then you will experience true life. God doesn't want your best. 
I do. Follow me. Who are you going to trust? God or me? That's the lie underneath all lies. Who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust God in His way or are we going to follow the devil and His way? Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. By implication, we are held in bondage by, deceptive, by deception and by lies. You think of the elephant. So the, the classic example here is of the big, full-grown, 2,000-pound elephant who's staked to the ground with a, a skinny little rope. And you look at this elephant and say, why doesn't the elephant just pull up that stake and walk away to freedom? Because he's bound by an idea. The trainers start when they're little baby elephants. They stake them to the ground. The baby elephant can't get away from the stake. Gets that idea in its mind. And then when it grows to be a full-grown elephant, now it's held in place or in bondage, not by the rope and the stake, but by the idea. And there are ideas. So we have the ability to form mental maps that determine how we live our lives. And we can live our life according to a true mental map and a true idea and that which corresponds to God's truth or we can live our lives according to deception. And we, we ought to say, what is truth? Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Now the problem with living according to a lie, I mean, one can do that. The problem with it is eventually you run up against something called reality. You know, and that's what we call, they got a dose of reality. H.H. Farmer writes, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. I might believe, you know, I, I, I can defy gravity. Anybody seen Wicked? Wicked, she sings that song, the protagonist, defying gravity, I'm fly. And there, by the way, there's a theme in that musical, Wicked. There's a theme. People born wicked or they choose wickedness. What constitute wickedness? She's going to defy gravity a law of gravity. So God has moral laws and God had physical laws in the universe. I'm not bound by any laws. If I believe that, I climb up on top of this building, I'm going to defy the laws of gravity and jump off. I'm going to come up against a big, heaping, helping dose of reality when I hit the bottom. Well, likewise, John Mark Comer writes, the emotional, relational, family, societal, and political meltdown we've been living in for years now is daily proof that we're drifting further and further into dangerous territory. That's why the title of his book, Live No Lies. Now, we could, at this point, we could talk about some of the big lies that are being perpetrated in the world today, right? So Satan tells lies that appeal to our distorted desires and are normalized in a sinful society or culture. We could talk about that, there's some whoppers, but we're not. I don't think we might save that until the message on the world. But a lot of the lies that we believe that imprison us are much more personal. You're ugly. You're unworthy. You're a misfit. Nobody likes you. Nobody loves you. You're a failure. You never succeeded anything. All kinds of lies, and they bind us. The devil's primary weapon is the lie. And then the fourth and final thing that we want to say this morning is that we fight the devil by practicing the spiritual disciplines. We fight the devil by practicing the spiritual disciplines. When we look at the life of Jesus, it is a template for us on how to live 
and how to fight. And we call them practices of Jesus, but traditionally they're known as disciplines, spiritual disciplines. And there's no set list. There's no set list. But we can observe one or two this morning. In Luke chapter 4, we have this encounter between Jesus and the devil. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the Scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. So this happened three times. Or at least we have the three that are recorded. He was actually tempted the entire 40 days. But they culminated in these three temptations. Each time he responds with Scripture. So what's going on here? A lot's going on. But notice where Jesus is. He's in the desert. He's in a place of solitude. Solitude. Silence. He's praying. He's fasting. And his mind and his mouth are full of Scripture. These are the practices of Jesus. These are the disciplines. Let's note two this morning specifically for fighting the devil. One is quiet prayer. Quiet prayer. A time of silence and solitude where we reflect on God. This is a time when the devil's lies can be exposed. We can think about them, reflect on them. Henry Nguyen said, without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. The spiritual disciplines, like quiet prayer, are not preparation for spiritual warfare. They are spiritual warfare. It is in this time of prayer. That's the battlefield where we determine, am I going to follow God or am I going to follow the devil? Even the very practice of carving out some time in our schedule to get away and be quiet and to pray is taking a stand with God against the devil. The devil doesn't want us to do that. The devil says, you don't have time to do that. That's not important. You've got more important things to do. So are we going to believe God and follow his way or are we going to believe the devil and follow his way? Quiet prayer. And the second one is Scripture. Jesus' mind and mouth full of Scripture. Each of these three recorded temptations were answered with Jesus quoting a Scripture. But we want, we want to be careful. This is not the Christian equivalent of a magical incantation. It's not like I can quote a Scripture and the devil has to flee away. It's more like this. Jesus' mind and heart were saturated with Scripture. That scriptural ideas and ways, God's way had formed and molded him. When we give ourselves to Scripture, our minds are being renewed and reformed. We're thinking not the devil's lies, but we can't think nothing. We must think something in place of the lies, and the things that we are to think are the thoughts of God. And we think God's thoughts after him. And we read large sections or chunks of portions of Scripture, and our minds are remade. And new neural pathways are formed in our bodies, our minds, and in our actions and activities. And we wind up living those out. 
Romans 8, 6, Paul writes, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. That's why we give the one-year Bible. When we have baptisms, we give a one-year Bible out to a person who was baptized. Because we're so focused on forming that initial habit and that discipline of reading Scripture, reading large amounts of Scripture every day, reading through the entire Bible every year. So our minds, so we can do that battle. We're, we're equipped to do battle. Remember this guy? Let's put his name, let's put this picture back up here. What was his name? Yes, Ignaz Semmelweis. Told you you'd need that in the future. So what was the response of the medical staff to Ignaz's evidence and proposals? They howled in protest. They scorned him, belittled him, and fired him. When he was hired at another hospital in Budapest, he obtained the same results for his patients, and he encountered the same rejection by the medical staff. Eventually, he ended up in an insane asylum where he died. It took decades before the medical community embraced this simple idea. Washing hands is the best way to control infections. They simply didn't believe in an invisible enemy called germs. Even now, hospitals sometimes have to have incentive programs to make sure doctors and nurses are washing their hands before examinations. So what's the bottom line here? If you don't read your Bible and pray, your preacher is going to go insane. It's not that, but... It is this. You know, I think most of us are practicing spiritual disciplines. We're following the way of Jesus. We're spending time in quiet prayer reading the Bible. But there may be some of us who go home this morning and we've heard this and we don't change anything. We're not reading. We're not praying. We don't change anything. And just like this stubborn medical community, because what it boils down to, we don't really believe that the invisible enemy. We don't believe the battle is on. We don't believe that these are the things with which we fight and how we make a difference. We have to believe that Satan is real, knows something about his nature, so we choose the right strategy with which to fight. We are getting out in the world every day and facing the lies. It's like we're getting covered with germs, and the germs are coming inside, and we have to do something to cleanse ourselves and counteract that internal cancer of deception. And that's quiet prayer and the Word of God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we will be strong in the Lord and in your mighty power. We put on your full armor so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. We know that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We put on your full armor, God, so that when the hour of evil comes today, we may be able to stand our ground. And after we have done everything, to stand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.